Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 106 Ardwin and Corporation. Now, normally I'd have about a half a page of announcements or corrections to make before I start our tour, but that board happens to be blank this week. So rather than run my mouth to fill space, let's say we crank up the tour bus and just get straight to this week's first topic. Ardwin is a fantasy role-playing game designed by David A. Hargrave and originally self-published in 1977. It has been noted by numerous writers over the years that Ardwin was one of the earliest challengers to the D&D throne, and since Ardwin has a long and interesting history, we need to start the deep dive with a look at that. Ardwin began its life in the mid-1970s as a personal project Hargrave cooked up to share with his friends. The genesis of that came from him initially homebrewing variant rules for D&D for his own campaign that he was playing with his friends in the San Francisco Bay Area. Several writers over the years have noted that that campaign was already fairly heavily altered with house rules, and Ardwin was the custom setting he wound up creating. It's also been noted that Hargrave had literally hundreds of players playing through his games, though obviously not all in the same sessions. Listen, I have enough trouble with eight at my table. I don't even want to think about trying to run a hundred in a go. Just saying. Ardwin itself was set up to be a neutral ground of sorts, situated between nations that had previously been at war with one another. And the game's popularity wasn't lost on players and creators with a bit of stroke in the game industry. In 1976, Greg Stafford joined the game for a while, and he was so impressed with it that he personally approached Hargrave about his company, Chaosium, bringing the game to market as the Arduin Grimoire. The deal went so well that Chaosium announced that they'd be publishing the game in February of 1977, and that would have been Chaosium's first tabletop role-playing game release. Now, a funny thing happened on the way to publication. When it was time to submit the manuscript for Chaosium to edit and lay out for printing, Hargrave sent them what has been termed as an incomplete manuscript. So with no options available to meet the deadline, Stafford rejected the pages submitted and dropped the game from the publication schedule. As I noted, however, Hargrave decided to publish the game on his own with the first release titled The Ardwin Grimoire. Two other books, Welcome to Skull Tower and The Runes of Doom, were released in 1978, and those three books have become known as the Ardwin Trilogy. The Ardwin Trilogy brought a number of interesting features to the table. Not only were a number of the rules different from the norm, but Hargrave provided a number of new spells, character classes, monsters, treasures, maps, storylines, you get the picture. He also included demonography, charts, and lists that detailed what he referred to as the Arduin multiverse. And for the record, that was a fairly new concept to gamers at the time as well. Now, let's be honest here. The original trilogy was intended to be supplements for the original version of D&D. 
Now, of course, they couldn't just go out and advertise that fact, since without express consent of TSR Games, they'd be violating a number of trademark and copyright laws. However, word of mouth, as well as that stubbornness we gamers are known for, allowed for the books to be utilized in that very way, and most of the articles I read during my research noted that gamers at the time were definitely using the materials as supplements to their own D&D campaigns. The connection was so close to D&D that one actually needed the D&D core books of the time in order to actually play the game, as Hargrave didn't create his own game engine to run Ardwin off of. Now, before you get too hard on him, let's remember the time. In the mid-1970s, the tabletop role-playing game hobby was still in its infancy, so there really weren't a ton of folks running around out there creating wholly new game systems. Plus, since Hargrave had been integrating the Arduin materials into his own campaign as he was creating them, kind of sort of makes sense that it would have that tied in. And we'll elaborate a bit more on that shortly. Shortly after the release of the second two books in the trilogy, Hargrave actually sold Arduin to one of his players, a fellow by the name of Jim Mathis. Mathis, in turn, started his own publishing company out of his apartment building on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. That company was Grimoire Games, and it would continue to publish materials until 1983. In fact, it was Mathis who first combined the three books of the trilogy together and published them as such. Otherwise, his focus was primarily on supplements written by Hargrave. There were four adventure modules produced during this time— Caliban, The Howling Tower, and The Citadel of Thunder in 1979, and Death Heart in 1980. They were numbered one through four, and while Caliban and Death Heart, which were the bookends of the line, were high-level adventures, The Howling Tower was a low-level run, and The Citadel of Thunder was targeted to mid-level groups. Grimoire Games was also responsible for two boxed sets during their stewardship of the line. The Arduin Trilogy is a box set released in 1981 and was the first to include all three of the initial books for the game. It was followed with the Arduin Adventure, also in 1981. That box included the Arduin Adventure book, a few pages of magic items, three character sheets, and two D20s. It also had a basic adventure, The Forgotten Tower. Now, by the time the Arduin Adventure came out, Grimoire Games was having some serious financial issues, and it found itself in a position where they really couldn't publish anymore. Rather than shutter his company, however, Mathis decided instead to put it on what we'd call a hiatus, but not before they released a free update to the Arduin rules in 1984. Mathis would continue to try to publish materials on his own after that, and some of you from the Southern California area might have run into him in the late 1980s doing that very thing, especially if you were in San Diego. In the meanwhile, Hargrave got the rights to Arduin back, and he joined forces with Dragon Tree Press to release more products, and that venture produced The Lost Grimoire in 1984, Dark Dreams in 1985, The House of the Rising Sun in 1986, Shadowlands in 1987, and Winds of Chance in 1988. However, Winds of Chance would be published posthumously as David Hargrave passed away earlier that year. Shortly after the final publication, the rights to Arduin reverted to Grimoire Games, 
and Jim Mathis decided to pay tribute to Hargrave by finishing manuscripts Hargrave hadn't been able to, and he released him as the complete Arduin in 1993, once again using the Grimoire Games company name. Now, he couldn't do it by himself, though, and he'd sought out the assistance of another distributor. They ran into some major issues, not the least of which is the fact that the book was exceptionally large and therefore expensive to produce. That meant they'd need to sell a lot of copies to make money, and when they only sold half the print run, that was the death knell for Grimoire Games, and they shut their doors shortly thereafter. However, like so many games we've covered on the course of this show, Arduin kept getting extra lives. Emperor's Choice Games and Miniatures got the rights in 2002, and they took another unfinished David Hargrave text, finished it, and released it as End War in 2002. Now, to this point, that's the last release for Arduin. Now, there are a few one-of-a-kind Arduin products out there, as Hargrave had a habit of creating things for people he liked. There were also several fully completed or almost fully completed manuscripts that neither Grimoire Press or Emperor's Choice have chosen to publish. I know of three of these through my research, and two of them are in the hands of writer friends of Hargrave's, while the other was a tribute to his friend Lance Masmanian as the adventure revolved around his personal burial chamber. Now, there's not a lot of info out there on these, and I wouldn't normally have even reported on them with the amount I've got, but it seems like so many people online know about them, so I've kind of got to put them in here. And one more note on the actual books themselves. Over the years, a number of well-known illustrators provided artwork for the various Arduin releases. Among them were Errol Otis, Greg Espinoza, Brad Schneck, and Michio Okamura. And if you've read through enough game books over the years, you've definitely seen their work. And if I'm being honest, even though I screwed their names up, their work is phenomenal. All right, we're, uh, we're going to forego our usual look into the specifics of the game system, as I've noted more than once that the chassis for Arduin was the original edition of D&D. You know, sure, they made a few adjustments along the way, but it never really became its own system. And that leads me to some of the controversies that surrounded Arduin. I mean, as you might expect, the first set of big problems Hargrave had were with TSR. I mean, it was, it was known you'd need the D&D books to play. However, that wasn't the issue. TSR's problem was that in the forward to the first release, Hargrave seemed to suggest that people copy the D&D books, among others, without buying them. Now, even today, that is seen as a giant no-no. Back then, back then, people got their asses kicked for a whole lot less than that. I'm just saying. Hargrave's solution to that was to take whiteout and correction tape, Google that shit, kids, and covered up all the D&D references in the book, and then he reprinted them exactly the way they were, and he called it a second edition. Again, readers and critics reported for years that many of these so-called corrections could still be seen clearly in the new copies. But that wasn't the only issue TSR had. Hargrave had his own version of a prismatic wall spell. TSR, though, thought it read a bit too close to their own, and Hargrave agreed to alter his description and change some of the colors. Again, though, he did that about as well as he did with removing the D&D references, and it could still be seen in copies of the new printing. 
By the time Hargrave got around to the third printing slash edition, he was still courting controversy as he had the drawing of a topless female character in it. Yeah, it was the late 1970s and yeah, folks were still a bit more lax about some of these things, but there was enough of a stink raised that the female character got basically a bikini top when the fourth printing came out. Another touchy subject with gamers are the mechanics. Now, I've beat him up enough over this, and I will continue to do so in a minute when we cover the reviews. But it has to be noted that pretty much everyone who used Arduin either just used D&D's mechanics or homebrewed their own. There were a few mechanics that Hargrave had cooked up, but gamers have basically agreed they're much like Voldemort. They can exist, but we don't speak their name. I got one more story to cover here. We covered the failed Chaosium deal earlier, and that led to some friction between Hargrave and Greg Stafford. Hargrave was pissed off at Stafford because he believed Stafford had selectively allowed the publishing deal to fall through. Hargrave went so far as to create a spell for Arduin that he named after Stafford. I think I'm just going to read the spell as written, and I did get this off a message board online, so if it's not 100% accurate, I apologize. Stafford's Starbridge, ninth level mage spell. It produces a rainbow-hued bridge of coursating light that is 5 feet wide and 20 foot long per level of the caster over the level needed to cast the spell. The bridge will carry any weight, and it cannot be hit by non-magical things. The bridge can also be keyed to support any single type or more, letting all others fall through selectively. Now, it's that last part that made it a spite spell. Stafford admitted several times that while he was initially pissed about it, he got over it. And he also noted that Hargrave had told him more than once that he regretted having created the spell and how he'd acted in that particular situation. However, there are a number of players from that first generation of role players who've noted over the years that Hargrave could have a volatile personality. In fact, several gaming historians have noted that most of that role-playing community either loved him or tolerated him, and those in the second category were there because of the volatility he could produce. That being said, he did do something that hadn't been done to that point, and that's put TSR and D&D on notice. If you look at the editions since the original, they've all been more detailed, more creative, and have attempted to be more user-friendly than the original edition. So, love him or hate him, you gotta give the man his props. Okay, I promised you reviews, so let's wrap up this portion of the tour by covering a couple. Mike Gunderloy reviewed Arduin for the October-November 1979 edition of Different Worlds. He was an admirer of all of the information presented that could be utilized in a D&D game. However, he noted, quote, The lack of organization. Rules relating to a single subject are often in different parts, even different volumes of the trilogy, end quote. However, he did recommend the release for DMs, noting that, quote, No referee who has decided to expand his world should be without a copy of the Arduin trilogy. Buy it. You'll be amply rewarded in the form of ideas and enjoyment, end quote. Don Turnbull had his own review in the April-May 1979 issue of White Dwarf. He gave the game a 4 out of 10 rating, calling it, quote, a mass of information, no doubt useless to some and useful to others, end quote. He concluded, quote, I could not advise anyone to buy the grimoire from which to learn the fantasy game hobby from scratch, but if you want what is in effect a D&D supplement, don't mind the price, and are prepared to be selective in what you extract from it, there will no doubt be useful snippets you could find, end quote. 
I wanted to put one more in, and you're going to see why. The folks at RPG Geek give the trilogy a rating of 7.57 out of 10. Why? It's, quote, a work of genius, a work of plagiarism, brilliant and ridiculous, end quote. If you're interested in seeing what all the fuss was about, drivethroughrpg.com has the PDFs for the first edition, so head on over there if you want to give it a look-see. Next up on our tour is Corporation. Designed by James Norbury, it was published by Brutal Games and released through Mongoose Publishing's Flaming Cobra imprint in 2006. The folks at Brutal Games have noted that Corporation was inspired by films like The Fifth Element, Gattaca, Johnny Mnemonic, and Total Recall. So that should kind of give you an idea of what we're dealing with here. Corporation is set in the year 2500 AD, and the world it's set in is way different than the world we've gotten today. Five corporations wield so much power that they can pretty much make their own laws. Yeah, all right, so maybe it's not that much different from where we are today. I mean, just saying. The corporations took part in a very large and exceptionally savage war as they rose to power, leaving a large chunk of the world devastated and basically uninhabitable. But a new era in human development has risen from those ashes. Citizens in this world live in the gleaming spire cities, and mankind is taking its first steps, albeit baby steps, in colonizing the solar system. And since the end of the corporate wars and the creation of the United International Government, or UIG, there have been no global conflicts and crime has hit an all-time low. Now, as you'd expect from the setup, each corporation is looking to shape the world to its own ideals. And where there are those looking to gain lots of power and influence, there are going to be those willing to take advantage of the corporation that overextends itself in that pursuit. So, that's where our players come in. They play agents, cybernetically altered and biomodified humans who have the most advanced tech money can buy. They act as mid-level executives with the job of dealing with issues the corporations can't openly tackle. Now, before we move on, we're not going to have reviews of Corporation, so I decided instead to spend more time fleshing out the setting itself. I've done this before, and those have been some of the episodes we've gotten the most positives out of, so here I go again. So let's begin by talking about cities. I know I mentioned the Spire cities, but there are actually four types of city in the game. Those spire cities take multiple forms. Some are fairly basic towers, while others are pagoda-shaped and others go for more of a gothic feel. The basic spire has a base of 1 to 2 kilometers across and is 800 to 1,000 floors tall. The typical spire houses about a half a million citizens and has a makeup that is 70% citizen, 20% commercial, 10% corporate. Next up are the open cities. These are cities that weren't too terribly damaged during the fighting and are still up and running. Other than technological differences, these really aren't that much different than our cities today. Many citizens prefer the open cities to the spires, but open cities are harder to police and therefore have higher crime rates. They also typically have more diseases and overall worse conditions. The two most famous open cities are Los Angeles, called Nuevo Angelos in the game, and Tokyo. Let's talk relic cities. These aren't so much cities that are lived in, but rather those that are visited as a sort of pilgrimage. Relic cities are controlled by the Order of the Faith, and the cities themselves hold or 
once held anyway, great religious significance. These cities are guarded by the devoted of the order and are considered to be the holiest of holy. These cities radiate power and instill a sense of awe into those who visit them. The best example I have for a relic city in our time would be Jerusalem, though it's not the best example as it is lived in. Last up are the old cities. These are the cities that didn't fare so well during the wars. In fact, they're mostly wreckage. However, there are citizens who live there, though they're mostly the poor and those hunted by the law and or corporations. The UIG technically govern the old cities, but they really don't do much to police them or improve them, so the infrastructure is collapsing. All right, so we've taken a brief look at the city types, but since the word corporation is actually in the title, what are they? Overall, the corporations have a bunch of different roles to play, and we'll break those down when we hit them individually in a moment. Characters usually work for one of the five corporations, but there are also options to be bounty hunters, employees of the UIG, or just basic citizens. Of course, once the characters have chosen the corporation they work for, the other corporations become both enemy and ally, and frequently both at the same time. This is where the GM will be earning their pizza since the NPCs may be on their own missions when they run into the characters, and chaos may or may not ensue. The Aijin Corporation takes up a huge part of mainland Asia. They have legitimate business, and that revolves mostly around the macro structure and mining industries. However, their bread and butter, and therefore the source of their strength, is in the criminal world. Most Aijin agents will be criminals and will have roots in well-known crime syndicates like the Chinese triads, the Japanese Yakuza, the American Mafia. You're getting my point. So characters working for the Ajin will be more than likely setting up gangs and working through the underworld to make sure the corporation is doing well, making money, and gaining enough information to blackmail their way to the top. The Comoros Alliance isn't so much a corporation as it is an organization, and it's pretty much the only group out there looking out for the common good. Comoros oversees the world's health, education, and cultural integrity. Their roots are in an alliance made by India and Africa. Over time, though, it's grown into a superpower. Their major advantage is that they have a mastery of telepathics that no other corporation can match. The flip side of this is that they're basically broke, and they're woefully behind in the technology war. So, agents for Comoros are constantly thin on cash and using older, probably crappy equipment. But, they're working to improve the world, rather than exploiting it for personal gain, so there is that, right? <laughs> Yeah, all right, I just audibly heard your eyes roll. Moving on. Eurasian Incorporated, or EI for short, specializes in the health and leisure industry, which, as you might expect, brings in monster amounts of cash. And, of course, that makes them the best financiers in the world. EI agents are flashy, well-dressed, carefree, and could give two shits about the effects of collateral damage. I mean, after all, more cash brings in more decadence, right? I mean, I wouldn't actually know anything about that, but I'm going to assume it's true. More often than not, an EI agent's solution to anything is to either throw money at it or blow it the hell up. Now, not all do that, but let's be real. If my group was playing EI agents, they'd be doing that shit in a heartbeat. Also, they get expense accounts, fast cars, tailored suits, and the best of luxury accommodations. Let's talk about Shi Yukiro. They combine the refined efficiency of modern Japan with the philosophies and rituals of ancient Japan. 
High-end tech is their field of expertise, and the world's dependence upon them have made Xi Yukiro's position at the top pretty much permanent. Agents for Xi Yukiro are going to have the greatest level of respect for their country, combined with a strong sense of cultural identity. Stealth, high-tech surveillance, carefully deployed weaponry, and lightning displays of martial prowess are their hallmarks. It's one of those mixes of high-tech and ancient techniques. They are the blackened knives of Shi Yukiro, if you will. They deal with anything that would threaten the corporation's status or stain their honor. Last up is the Western Federation. They make the best weapons in the game world, so that automatically makes them one of the largest and most powerful corporations out there. Their territory swallows up all of North America and a decent-sized chunk of South America. But to this point, they haven't expanded further. Their policies are a combination of old-school values and clean living, which has given them a stronghold on their resident population. While the citizens tend to see this method as imperfect, they find it a whole hell of a lot better than anywhere else in the world, which, if I'm being honest, is a very American perspective even today. Federation agents are well-paid, very well-armed, and operate much like American Special Forces units. So their knowledge and mastery of military operations gives them a big advantage in urban fights. Their missions frequently are like any others, but they tend to be more on the side of sweep and clean and seek and destroy. Why did I just hear Metallica play in my head? Weird. Okay, since I didn't get to break down a game system earlier, I'm really kind of stoked to break this one down. One thing I need to note off the top is that Corporation acts more realistic than a lot of other games. The system they use is the Brutal system, and I'll be outlining that in another episode, so stick around for that. Let's talk character creation. It begins by assigning points to seven attributes. Agility, endurance, intelligence, perception, presence, reflexes, and strength. I think we've seen all these before in other games, so I really don't think they need much more explaining. Stats cost one point per level, and the player has a pool of 49 points to use to build. Stats can range from 1 to 10, though it needs to be noted that agents have to have a minimum of 5, an average of 7, and a cap at 10. Stats like hit points and telepath energy are created by adding certain attributes together, which is again similar to other games we've discussed in the course of this podcast. There's a stat that isn't an attribute. It's called conviction. It gives the character bonuses in certain circumstances, so it's a good one to make sure you drop some points into. A player also gets to assign set levels in a number of skills. There's a minimum of 1 and a maximum of 8 for a starting skill level, and there are 25 skills. I could list them all, but by now we've all seen skills in different games, and I think that based on the style of game this is, you can figure them out. Besides, if I told you everything, there'd be no need to pick up the book, right? Characters have the option, if not the need, to pick up licenses. These are permits to do anything that is either controlled or restricted by the UIG, and that includes having cybernetic implants or making a sanctioned kill. It also applies to becoming qualified in a professional skill, like driving or flying. There are trainings available, and these are very similar to the D20 system's feats and are mostly combat-oriented. Telepathics are available, and those are psychic powers. Let's get into skill rolls. Skill rolls are made with 2d10, though it's not a percentile system. One die represents the attribute, and the other the skill used. The GM gives the target number, and rolling equal to or below the number means success, with double ones being a critical success or hit, in which case the GM can give the character a bit more help. 
Double tens are bad, and the critical failure means something went wrong. It should be noted that the quality of the agent's equipment could play into the critical failure number being lower than a 10. So basically, that's corporation. I've checked around the web, and it appears that the only place you can purchase the game is through the game's official website. So if you're interested, head over to corpgame.com and check it out. And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we check out Battle Lords of the 23rd Century. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. We're still chugging along on our Fallout game, and this week our group gets another step closer to working out just who seems to want both them and their benefactor dead. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we head into the 23rd century to check out Battle Lords of the 23rd Century. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.